Welcome to Philosophy and Faith, where our goal is to help you navigate your intellectual and spiritual journey, especially in regards to topics like God, faith and doubt, meaning and purpose, and more. I'm Nathan Beeson. And I'm Daniel Jepson. And together we discuss the big questions that humans have wrestled with for thousands of years. We're glad you can join us. So we've been talking about faith and doubt and how faith is not about certainty, but there can actually be degrees of certainty and that sort of thing. And it's not just adhering to a set of belief, but it's trusting a person. And so I think in this episode, we want to kind of talk through what does it look like when you are struggling with faith or you're deconstructing, or maybe somebody comes to you and they say, I'm, I'm in a season of deconstructing certain beliefs. What should I do? So Daniel, how would you walk through somebody who comes to you expressing that? What are some practical ways that you can, can give to help us deal with doubt? Sure. And a lot of these are going to be dependent on where that person is and what they're particularly doubting. But certainly I've had many times of doubt before in my Christian walk, as you probably have too. Yeah. And so some of these are what has helped me or helped other people. Let me give you some suggestions. And the first is this idea that you mentioned last time that we need ballast. And for those who may not be familiar with the term, if a ship goes out onto the ocean, it needs ballast, which is a very heavy weight in the bottom of the ship. Very often ships today use seawater, but they used to use, say, bricks or rocks. You can find streets today that are made of bricks uh, that were formed in England because the ships that came and brought people from England used those for ballast. Hmm. So, And what's the purpose of it? Oh, sorry. The purpose of ballast is that your ship has a stability on the bottom even when storms come. So you're going to have a storm that, that rocks back and forth. And if you don't have any ballast, that ship is just going to go wherever the wind takes it without control. Oh. But if you have a, some ballast, yeah, you're still going to get rocked around a lot, but you're able to stay upright and control the ship. So that's the idea. So the idea of ballast is important because you are going to have times of doubts. And unless you have that ballast, it might be game over in terms of your walk with Christ. That's a helpful metaphor. What is ballast in the Christian life? How can you grow that? Well, one thing is just to deepen your walk with Christ and your understanding of the scriptures. That, to me, has been the greatest ballast in my life is looking at the scriptures and knowing, okay, there are some things I don't like in the scriptures. I'm going to be honest. I'm a pastor as well as a teacher, and there are some things I don't like. There are some things I don't get. There are some things that seem like, okay, if I'm just reading this by itself, there is no way I'm believing this. At the same time, I have seen wondrous, beautiful truths within this book that I have never seen anywhere else in human literature, and I've read uh, most of the classics. To me, there is a depth and a beauty and a wonder to this. That, to me, is a lot of the ballast. So I think there have been times, especially after our son died, where maybe I would have walked away if there weren't this idea that I can't, you know, there's yeah. just too much here. And I think you see that in John chapter six. All right, this is a really good example. So Jesus gives some very puzzling statements. He's talking about, unless you eat my body, you don't have eternal life. He hasn't instituted the, the Eucharist yet, the Lord's Supper. So 
his disciples are really tripping out. In fact, it says a lot of the crowd just up and leave. They're like, <laughs> okay, that's just weird, bizarre. You either are crazy or you're just trying to drive us off on purpose, you know, or something. And uh, he looks at his disciples, the 12, and he says, do you want to go also? And I love the gentleness of Jesus. He's not trying to drive people off, but he's making clear and, and he's allowing people to leave. Do you want to leave also? And, and Peter says, Lord, where can we go? Hmm. You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you're the son of God. Wow. And he doesn't say, oh, no, Jesus, we understand. You're speaking symbolically about your body being given to us on the cross and how we receive God's life through that. He doesn't understand any of that because the cross hasn't happened. He doesn't say, no, we get it. He says, we have heard you speak words of eternal life. Now there's nowhere else we can go. Wow. And when I look at all the alternatives to the Christian faith, naturalism or Eastern thought or some other idea that I could turn to, I can't. They don't have to me the same truth or beauty that Christianity has. So even in those times where I could have walked away, I can't walk away. Wow. So to me, that's balanced. For some people, it might be more religious experience, either of their conversion and how God changed their life or perhaps some miracle that they saw. Maybe the world isn't called a miracle, but they saw, they saw a profound change or some profound answer to prayer. I heard someone say, you can't argue with someone with a story. And what he meant by that is, you can't just give philosophical arguments or logical arguments to someone who knows by their own personal experience that something is true. So for some people, it might be that. And the ballast in this case might be recalling that, thinking that through in your life a little bit. Yeah, it reminds me when Paul's instructing, I believe, Timothy to make every effort to recall or confirm your calling. Yeah. Where he's saying, hey, there are going to be seasons when you're going to want to give up, but actually remembering the time when Jesus called you to be a, a pastor in Ephesus, remember that because that can help get you through the difficult times. Yeah. And I can't help also think that's probably the reason that God made the Passover, this beautiful event of what God had done in Israel's history and saving them yeah. in annual occurrence. And why the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, remember me as you do this. We're not yeah. just practicing something. We are focusing our mind on what God has done because, listen, we probably do too. There are going to be times where we don't see that unless we have that regular practice involved. Wow. So practices of remembering. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know you've talked about in, in, in various sermons just how frequently God instructs Israel to remember. Yeah. Remember, remember, remember. Because as soon as you forget, that's, that's when, I mean, losing that ballast is, is a really challenging thing. I think another thing for me that's important to build ballast is testimony. Yeah, testimony it, of other people. Testimonies of other people or even just sharing my own stories. And testimony not just being like when I first became saved or anything like that necessarily, although it can be that, but the ongoing recognition of God's work and movement in my life. Uh, whether that's family or my church community or that kind of thing. I, I, I remember this line from Dallas Willard, who talks about the objective of apprentices is to dearly love and constantly delight in the heavenly father made real to earth in Jesus. 
and become quite certain that there is no catch, no limit to the goodness of his intentions or his power to carry them out. Yeah, I love that quote. Getting to that place um, through personal experiences and heart-to-heart connection with God through prayer, through scripture, and that sort of thing can definitely help develop the ballast there. Definitely. That's a, that's a huge one. I had another idea here, and I don't know if this falls into the idea of ballast or separate, but it's kind of the idea, this phrase isn't original, but I don't remember where it came from, is to borrow faith. And the idea being that there are going to be times where you have in your mind an intellectual objection to Christianity, and to borrow faith is to recognize that other people, many of whom are probably smarter than you, have also had that same objection or understood that same problem but have stayed faithful. So I think if a couple people come to mind for myself, William Lane Craig is one of the very few people who has two PhDs under some of the leading thinkers in their fields. So he went to England and got a PhD under John Hicks in philosophy of religion. And at that time, John Hicks was probably the most well-known scholar in the field of philosophy of religion. And then he went to Germany and he got a PhD under Jurgen Moltmann. Oh, no way. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And if you're familiar with 20th century, late 20th century theology, he is one of the two or three top names, probably. He and Pannenberg and maybe a few others. So anyway, he's got two PhDs in separate but related fields from the top academic people that he could write those PhDs under. And he advocates for the faith his entire life. There's not an argument that I could think of that he doesn't know. Wow. Or another person that comes to my mind is Alistair McGrath. I just love his writings. He's a wonderful thinker. But, you know, he went to Oxford and he got a PhD in molecular biology. And then he became a Christian after that. He was an atheist before. So he went and got a PhD in theology, which was also at Oxford, one of the Oxford colleges. Just for good measure, he went and got a PhD in intellectual history at one of the other schools at Oxford. Three Oxford PhDs. Now, I look at that and I say, okay, there is nothing that will come across my view that these guys haven't run across, and yet they stay faithful. Hmm. Or in the area of science, Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, very devoted Christian. There's no science issue that I'm going to run across that he hasn't already dealt with and and has stayed faithful. So that's what I mean by borrowing faith. Are you talking then primarily from these kind of intellectual giants who have heard the good reasons not to believe in their fields of study and yet have stayed faithful? That's a good question. We should probably expand that. There are going to be times we go through personal struggles, sometimes even personal tragedies. And we can borrow the faith of someone else who has gone through something like that and has stayed faithful. And we can look at them and say, at least I know I don't have to walk away, even though it doesn't make sense to me, mm. because I've seen models of people who stay faithful. Yeah. So it might be more like that, depending on the person. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about the faith community we have here and thinking that as one of the younger guys, there's a lot of people who have experienced a lot of things older than me and are still coming Sunday mornings. Right. <laughs> and so exactly. that to me is a very encouraging thing, especially as I spend time with them, uh, go out to lunch or coffee or something and hear more of their stories because I'm understanding more and more the ways in which they've experienced a lot of life and difficulty in life. Yeah. And 
as a young person, that's just so helpful for me building up the ballast. And there's not something in my mind that I've experienced in my life that I would put in the category of a tragedy, but I know that it's not outside of the realm of possibilities. Sure. And so what I'm trying to do now is, is to develop that in ways because I know that it will come. Yeah. I think you're wise. And I'm not saying this as a absolute rule, but a lot of times the people who walk away from the faith are not practicing the faith in a community with that kind of faithfulness. And so they don't have that balance and they don't have the support. So, but again, that's not an absolute statement. There are exceptions sure. to that. Let me give two more here. One more minor one and then one major one I want to end on. The minor one would be to fake it until you make it. Really? Yeah. And we've heard that phrase, right? And what, what I mean here is recognize that you will have seasons of doubt in your life. Sometimes they're going to be small. Sometimes they're going to be long and very deep and very long. But you have a choice to stay engaged and stay in a community and stay following Christ as best you can in spite of those times, even when you don't feel it. Recognize that your feelings are going to come and go, but you're not going to let them dictate how you act. You're going to choose to act based upon your will and what you want to be true and what you think is true, even if you don't feel it at the moment. What if that makes me feel like an imposter? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it depends on your motive. If you're doing it to get the applause of other people or some external reason like that, then yeah, you are an imposter. But if you're just doing it recognizing honestly, I'm going to keep doing this even though my emotions aren't fully engaged or I have some doubts, so I'm just going to keep at it. To me, that's not an imposter. That's just recognizing that part of being a human is our emotions and our certainty levels go up and down. And I think the definition of faith from the last episode and that we're carrying on through here is really helpful here that it's not just, faith is not just about certainty, right? but it's also an act of volition. So even continuing, you, you, you call it faking it till you make it, I, I would say stick with it till you make it. I mean, there's a way to stay committed even though your certainty goes down. And of course, there are so many metaphors here, but you, you don't do things that are valuable just because you feel like doing them. Mm -hmm. You do them because they are good things to do. In fact, I heard a definition of maturity that's that. Yeah. Maturity is not just doing good things because you want to, but because they're the right thing to do. So mm -hmm. I'm actually immature because sometimes I don't do the dishes. Well, we're all immature. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think putting that here is helpful because if you think that those things can help carry you through certainty or your feelings fluctuate, it still is an act of faith given yeah. the definition that you've already given us. Yeah. That's a good point about the maturity. And I suppose in some ways it's something like sticking into marriage, even though you don't feel like it sometimes or sticking at an important task like writing a book or some other important task to you, you're not always going to feel the desire to do that or even that it's valuable to do that. Yeah. But you stick with it because you realize those feelings are going to change eventually, Yeah, especially if you stick with it. And it's still doing something in you. Yeah. Opening up the word or carving out time to pray or going to church or small group or something, it's still doing something in you, even if you don't know it. And the aim is never just to do it for the sake of doing it, but for the sake of the greater good, which is fellowship with God and others. Yep. And so 
yeah, I, maybe I'm digressing a little bit, but no, that's fine. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the last thing. To me, the most important thing. So before we get there, yeah. can you recap the first, sure. first three? Make sure then... you have ballast. Okay. So ballast can be your own study of scripture, your own walk with God. It can be experience, testimony. Yeah, it can be experience. It can be testimony. You can borrow faith if you need to. That may be part of that ballast. You uh, fake it till you make it. And then lastly, I would say the most important part is to kind of change the metaphor of what faith is. I want to explain what, what I mean by that. I think in my early years, and some people probably have this idea, faith is like a house of cards. There's all these beliefs that go together and they fit together and they support each other. And there's all these beliefs about God and the Bible and the church tradition and what my church teaches and about Jesus. They all support each other. They each have one had their place. And what's the problem with, with the house of cards metaphor, though? <laughs> you take one card out. Yeah. And I feel like some people have that faulty metaphor because they feel like, okay, well, you know, I can't believe Genesis 1 is true. Right. And so they walk away from the faith because then all of a sudden, well, yeah, the whole thing falls down. Or they don't believe like some part of the Old Testament. Or they have a problem with part of the Old Testament like the conquest wars or and, and I get that. Or they have some other thing that they feel like, okay, I can't believe this idea, this part of the Christian teaching, therefore the whole thing comes tumbling down. Now, I think a better way of thinking through that is the idea of concentric circles. So concentric circles, you've got one circle at the very center, right? And the other circles around there. Yeah. And the center of this circle is Jesus Christ himself. Because faith is not primarily believing ideas, it's trusting a person, and their person is Jesus. Now, as we talked about last time, you probably have to have some beliefs about Jesus, that he existed, that he rose from the dead, that he taught these things. But the heart of it is trusting a person, even if you don't get all the rest. The heart of true faith is Jesus at that center, that middle circle, the circle around which everything else expands out of. And then the second circle outside of that, so around that, would be the teachings of Jesus. So I believe Jesus. It makes sense, therefore, to believe the teachings of Jesus that I see in the scriptures. So the first circle is Jesus. The second circle is the teachings of Jesus. And then the third circle would be the Bible teaching about the most important issues generally. So issues about God, about the cross, about salvation, about what it means to to walk with God, those kinds of things. At the very heart of Christian belief from the Bible, those be that next circle, the third circle. So the, like doctrine, theologies. The major teachings of the Bible. Okay. And then the fourth circle outside of that would be the other teachings of the Bible. And so outside of those doctrines, I would put, for example, issues of chronology, issues of dating, issues of authorship of certain particular books, Harmonization, that kind of thing. Yeah, harmonization or the place of spiritual gifts, you know, doctrines like that, doctrines of the end times. Kind of secondary. Secondary. Issues. I mean, if you're a, you know, a millennialist or a premillennialist or something and you're beginning to doubt that particular theory of eschatology, sorry, I realize I just spit out a lot of big words. <laughs> I mean, your, your faith is not in those things. Exactly. And so you can believe, many people do, that the Bible is mistaken on some issue in Genesis or Second Chronicles, but you still believe in Jesus. I'm not saying that's where I am necessarily. I'm just saying it's certainly conceivable. 
Yeah. Um, and then outside of that, that last circle would be the church's traditions and interpretations of all the above, all that's inside this. Mm. So the church can be dead wrong, but that doesn't mean Jesus is. The church is made up of fallible humans. Wow. We're going to interpret things through our very limited human knowledge and very obvious human sin and bias, right? So we're not going to get everything right. But that's not the question. The question is, when I look at this Jesus in the scripture, do I believe that he existed and that he went to the cross for me and was resurrected and that because of that, I can now have a new relationship with God? If I believe that, that is what it means to be a Christian, especially if I, I think, probably include the second circle of trying to follow his teachings. Now, to me, it seems consistent that those other circles probably fit into place as true, but it's not a house of cards. It's a circle where I'm focused on Jesus, and if I have an issue with some of these other things for a while, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of my faith. Yeah, so the, the church can change, and that doesn't have to wreck us. No, not at all. It's, that's so interesting because I feel like there is a lot of change going on in the global church right now. There's a lot of shifting and, you know, new issues in culture uh, have just led people to different sides of different issues and that kind of thing. But that doesn't have to move us away from faith in Jesus. No. And sometimes it can remind us to focus on that faith in Jesus instead of all the peripheral issues. Because we can disagree with each other. I can disagree with other Christians and other denominations, other countries about certain doctrines or even how to interpret parts of the Bible. But if we have a common belief and trust in Jesus, then we are brothers and sisters. Yeah. So it's not that that other stuff doesn't matter. No, it's just not central. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does, but it doesn't matter as much as that first and second circle. So first circle is Jesus, second one is Jesus' teaching, third one is kind of those... Core teachings of the Bible, what you might say is in the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creeds, even those, you're saying like, what if I'm struggling with those? I'm, I'm struggling with, he descended into hell as a doctrine, and that, that little line in the Apostles' Creed that I still don't understand what it means. Okay. That's real, by the way. I, I don't know what it that is, means. But I'm, it has more the idea of he descended to the underworld. I mean, okay. we're... We're reading English. They were using Hades, which would have been a Greek word for just the underworld in general. But I'm just saying, so I'm struggling with something in there. I'm, I'm doubting one of the phrases that we hold to be core teachings with, consistent with the historic global church. You know, what does that mean for me? It means you're struggling as a Christian to believe certain things about the Bible and about Christian teaching, but it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Okay, I got another one. All right. Doctrine of Scripture. Yeah. You know, the term totally authoritative versus inerrancy, you know, what if I'm struggling with the inerrancy of scripture? That's fine. I don't think that's an issue that you base or lose your salvation on. And I think if you read the scriptures very thoughtfully, you're going to have that struggle. So you have to work through it one way or another. But I think most most pastors or most Bible teachers who have really delved into the word have had to wrestle with that and come out one way or another. And we don't all have to come out at the same place. So doctrines like inerrancy or, or God's wrath, I think is another one that like, oh, that's, a, that's an uncomfortable idea. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing this up because some of these are uncomfortable to this. And maybe the church has not 
formulated these things in the best terminology or ways, or even understood them rightly sometimes. I mean, I think the church is still learning. I think we have a better understanding of some things than previous generations, not because we're smarter, but just because we're standing on their shoulders. So if someone is like, okay, I can't follow Christ because the doctrine of the wrath of God, just, you know, I can't abide that or I don't believe it. I would say, keep faith in Christ, work through that one way or another, but that's not the heart of what it means to be a, a Christ follower. Yeah. You will work through that one way or another. Yeah. You know, you're not just blowing it off, but we're just saying you can struggle and you can doubt some of those other issues. And that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you've lost your faith in Christ. Yeah. And I like that you bring up the point of just like the, the benefit of living in this day and age. The church has always been global, but uh, with the internet and that kind of thing, we have a lot of opportunities to hear from other voices. And I think that with certain questions about certain doctrines, we really have the gift of being able to hear from people with different faith traditions. Well, yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, go hear the Eastern Orthodox on the wrath of God, or go hear the Catholic position on whatever, or go read the, the Baptist statement of faith or the Methodists or the Episcopalian or Anglican. Like there's different ways of viewing these ideas and these concepts. And I think that sometimes especially as a younger person, I'm, I'm learning, okay, some of the stuff that I learned early on, maybe there is more nuance to it. Sure. It's good and it's right and it's true, but it needs, it needs to be balanced with another thought or position or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's always, well, not always, there's usually more nuance than we understand. You have to remember that we primarily get our knowledge of these things through pastors. But pastors are going to be trying to communicate this at a certain level with certain time frames. So uh, a professor teaching physics or a professor teaching um, quantum mechanics at an undergraduate level, which is still a pretty high level, is not going to be able to communicate all the nuances and qualifications of what they're teaching to those people, even though they have those ideas. And they talk about those with other people who've got a PhD or whatever. So as a pastor, I know I've got 30 minutes to communicate the main idea of this. But I also know in the back of my mind, there are a lot of nuances, qualifications, objections, and responses to those objections that I'm not going to get into because I can't. It's not going to be rhetorically helpful. Yeah. It makes me think of those YouTube videos that are like, Jacob Collier explains music theory at five different levels, like to a five-year-old, oh, yeah, to a okay. high school student, to a college student, to a doctoral student, you know. Um, I know we've got to wrap this up. I'm just curious, just in the last few minutes, kind of pastorally, we talked a lot about okay, if I'm struggling with doubt, you know, what that looks like. But just pastorally, if somebody comes into your office and they say, okay, this is what I'm struggling with. And so I'm thinking about listeners who are going to have Somebody come into their life and say, I'm struggling with this. Like, aside from these kind of four practical things that you've given that I think are really helpful, what's your posture? How are you walking through that with them? What does that process look like for you to walk through struggles of doubt with somebody else? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the first thing I do is affirm them. Very often, people feel guilty about doubts. And I remind them as I I put it, maybe I got this from somebody, 
that doubt is the only soil in which faith can grow. Because if you have certainty, like we talked about the last episode, I'm not going to repeat all that. If you have certainty, you don't have faith. Yeah. You have sight, you have knowledge, but not faith. Faith, by its nature, can only grow when you don't have certainty, which implies you will have doubt. So I hate when people feel guilty about having doubts. To me, that's just a, a fact that they're committed, but their mind is also engaged in it. There are some people who, for whatever reason, follow Christ and follow the church without really thinking about it too much. And that's fine. I'm not there to judge them. But I think it's great when people do. And when you do follow Christ with your mind, not just with your will or your heart, you will have doubts. You will have questions. So that's one thing. First thing I do is affirm them. And second, I talk about some of the things we just talked about here. Yeah. Sometimes, very often, there'll be a particular issue. Well, you know, I just can't believe it because I don't believe this issue. I'll say, guess what? You don't have to believe that issue in that way to be a believer. Let me give you some examples of people who are really committed to Christ, who don't agree with my interpretation, my church's interpretation, but they're more on your side. And they're, they're brothers or sisters in Christ. Yeah. So I try to show them in a practical way, kind of put that away from that inner circle. Show them this isn't a house of cards. I think that very often is helpful. And then third thing I tell them is, you know, be patient. There have been times where I've had some things, some intellectual problems with the Bible or Christianity that I was not able to solve in my mind for many years, sometimes maybe a decade or more. But at this stage of my life, I look back and say, you know what? Pretty much all those things I've come to understand can be answered in a very godly and wise way from the scriptures. That just because I didn't know how those things could be true at the time doesn't mean that they couldn't be. It just meant my knowledge and my wisdom at a certain time were not able to comprehend it. Yeah. And I think there are still some things that maybe I don't really understand or fully, um, but I've learned to trust that. I've learned to be okay with that. And that's what I try to convey to them. Wow. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That can be a very tender spot to be, to walk through that with somebody else. And, you know, the other, we've been talking a lot about intellectual questions or theological or doctrinal questions, those kind of things that can lead us to doubt. I think the other thing that we'll have to spend future episodes on is just experiential challenges when, when people experience suffering and that leads them to doubt how to deal with that. And of course the church has we have a lot of giants on whom's shoulder, I don't know how to say it. In the history of the church. Yeah. We have a lot of giants in the history of the church who have thought through, based on their own experience and on the experience of others, how to think about the nature of suffering in the world. Yeah, we have a lot of giants or strong people who have gone through it and they can carry us until we can walk ourselves. Yeah, and I think exploring those questions of, okay, how can I believe in God when all this suffering is present? Yeah in my life and in the world, I think will be really good to spend some time on in the future. Uh, we'll get there, yeah. I think personally, like that is one of the strongest objections to the existence of God would be the presence of evil and suffering. And so just share that with the listeners, because as a pastor, that is something that is hard sure. to think through. And so we'll, we'll get there. But, I would um, say as someone who has studied some philosophy, who has been a pastor for over 30 years, and as someone who has lost a son, 
that is not only one of the main questions that's an objection to Christianity, but probably the strongest one. Yeah. So we'll, we'll spend some time on that one, probably a few episodes, but this is sufficient for now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I feel like there's a lot of wisdom in those four practical ways that we can think about dealing with doubt, especially the intellectual doubt and all of that. Thank Great. you so much. My pleasure. See you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, click follow or subscribe depending on your platform. Check the notification bell so you're up to date with new episodes and leave us a review. Until next time.